Good morning, gang. It is Tuesday, April 23rd. Two days after we celebrated the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that many of you were able to celebrate it with uh, friends and family, hopefully gather with uh, some fellow saints to celebrate this momentous occasion every year that we do, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope that comes with it. Uh, today, uh, just outside my office, the morning sun is shining like a red rubber ball. Uh, maybe a little bit too much for this man's liking. Good morning, Brian. I tend to like, uh, good morning, Chris. I tend to like things a little gray and overcast, maybe because I have just a tiny bit of downer in me uh, at all times. I don't know. But uh, but it is the second day after we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, and it is still true today, just as much as it was on Sunday, and it will still be true tomorrow. So, all right, we are going to be looking at Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, short little devotion here today. Um, not too many verses, um, but only because, not because there's, you know, so much that we can't complete it all, but because we're dealing with really monumental ideas today. And I don't want to rush through it. And so if we have to uh, do a little shorter one today and then another little shorter one next week, instead of trying to bite off too much in one week, then, then that's what we'll do. So uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, uh, we'll just kind of read through it and then comment on it as we go. Here's the deal. Uh, when it really all comes down to it, really all comes down to it, there are only two religions in the world. Only two. Um, now I know, I mean, you know, we look around and we see Islam and Judaism and Buddhism and Hinduism and First Baptists and Southern Baptists and American Baptists and Free Will Baptists and other Christians and all the various offshoots and you're prone to maybe think that the statement I just made is lunacy, but I'm telling you when it really all comes down to it, there are only two religions, two. Uh, on the one hand, you have the one kind of religion which basically teaches in some way or another, that man gets to God, gets to heaven, achieves heaven by the things they do. Now, the different religions will have different expressions uh, about how that is done, of course. So Islam has its five pillars. Buddhism has nirvana. Judaism has legal observance and uh, charity, etc., but indeed, they all do have that one thing in common. They all emphasize that man is saved by their works, by climbing a ladder all the way up eventually through what they do. They are able to uh, impress God or get God on their side by their own righteousness. But then, of course, there's the other kind of religion, the exact opposite. It teaches that man cannot be saved by anything they do, that their works are so stained with sin that salvation, getting right with God, has to be, has to be entirely, from start to finish, an act of his grace. So those really, when it's all boiled down, are the two world religions. Salvation by works or by law, and salvation by grace or by gospel. Now, to catch us up with the text of Galatians, Paul has just gotten done explaining to the Galatians in chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, that their assurance of salvation 
has to rest entirely upon the work of Christ. And today he's going to explain the logic of that idea as he continues on. And the reasons why every single human being, if they would be saved at all, has to be saved by grace, by the work of Christ, by the gospel alone. So, so first of all, he says, it has to be salvation through the gospel alone because through your works you are cursed. Look at what verse 10 says. Literally, for as many as are from works of the law are under a curse. That's the way you could literally translate it. Some scholars paraphrase it uh, like this. Those who rely on works of the law or base their identity on their ability to follow God's law for their salvation, for their standing, are under a curse. And the word curse there uh, basically means a divine verdict of guilty and the sentence that comes with it, which is condemnation, uh, divine anathema. Now, how do you know this, Paul? Is this just you making up stuff? Is this just you, uh, you know, talking out of you know where? No, Paul says, let me quote for you from Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, to show you what I mean. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, here's the deal, gang. I looked up the words, all and things, all and things. And it turns out what they mean in the Hebrew and the Greek is all things. You have to do all of the things that the law says in your mind, in, from your heart, perfectly outwardly in order to be saved by your obedience. So of course he says right after that, it is evident then that no one is justified, saved, declared righteous. That's what justified means by the law or by their works. The word evident means it's obvious. Why is it obvious? Human history, the news, uh, your city, your community, your neighbor, your friends, yourself. We all know it. We all know that we don't measure up to this. We all know that when the law says do, that no matter how good we might <laughs> pretend or try to do, we still don't measure up to the standard of perfection. I've always thought of it sort of like this. I saw, I read a story a while back about a long distance swimmer named Diana Nyad. She was seeking to swim a hundred miles from Cuba to Florida. Now, if you were to use that swimming as an example here, uh, let's say that everyone, every person on earth is enlisted in a competition to swim, not from Florida to Cuba, but from New York to England or something. And let's set aside the fact that the water is probably way too cold anyway to even begin that swim. But everyone's out there, the Diana Nyads of the world and, you know, the Danny DeVitos of the world and, and everything in between, you know? I mean, you've got the amazing professional swimmer and then you've got the person that probably, uh, you know, would not be able to swim nearly as far. And, uh, and here's the thing, no doubt, uh, there would be some that would appear that would certainly go further uh, on that swim. They might appear to be, um, you know, crushing it at times. But the reality is, on their own strength, based on what they can do on their own, every person in that swim eventually ends up at the bottom of the sea, gurgling water. 
every single one. No one can pass the test. So this is why James says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, just one point, has become accountable for all of it. So Luther uh, goes so far to say that believing your works in any way can save you is tantamount to idolatry. He writes, thus we today can say both easily and surely whoever seeks righteousness apart from faith and through works denies God and makes himself into God. This is what he thinks. If I do this work, I shall be righteous. I shall be the victor over sin, death, the devil, the wrath of God and hell, and I shall attain eternal life. Now what is this, I ask you, but to arrogate to oneself a work that belongs to God alone, and to show that one is God? He continues, it is the greatest evil in the world. You can always count on Luther to uh, speak with a little hyperbole. It is the greatest evil in the world to lead the people to believe that outward works can save or make a man good. The greatest evil in the world, Luther says. It is evident, therefore, that no one is justified by works of the law. Now, a uh, perfect example of this. During, during, the, uh, during World War II, there was a Jewish resistance movement, and one of the leaders in the Warsaw Ghetto was a guy named uh, Yitzhak Zuckerman. And, of course, people, because they saw you know, that he was you know, fighting the good fight, assumed that he was a real kind of upstanding guy. And yet he says in his own writings, in his own words, listen, if you could lick my heart, it would poison you. If you could lick my heart, it would poison you. Oof, what a picture of the problem with man. So, so it has to be salvation from something, someone outside of us, because we are under a curse, unable to uncurse ourselves and that leads to the next point it has to be salvation through the gospel because jesus is the one who's taken the curse in your place and that's verses 13 and 14. listen to verse 13 because quote christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us it is written cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree let's just stop there and dig into this verse christ god's son messiah redeemed us, bought us back. The word was used, of course, to describe buying a slave out of the marketplace and often setting them free. We were slaves to sin, death, and hell, but Christ has paid the debt our sin incurred before our holy God from the curse of the law, the text says, the condemnation that the law brings to all of us, the, the punishment for our sin by becoming a curse for us, the way he pays God is by substituting himself in our place for you, for you, for you, for you. Folks, those two little words are all of Christianity. For you. That is the gospel. I'm telling you, when I think about that, when I think about those words being the very heart of Christianity, it, it just it gives, gives me a spring in my step. When I think about what Jesus has to go through for me, and yet he does it gladly, with joy, as Hebrews says, I can't help but want to praise him and say, hallelujah, thank you, God. So as God's creation is filled with the curse of sin, Jesus Christ goes behind the veil of the Father's holiness, behind the curtain where our sin is eating us away, and at the cross, 
he takes all of it on our behalf. He eats the poison away. He, he, he is the one who wins it all for us, enduring the curse, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Thus, Robert Capon, a great Episcopal priest and chef, uh, <laughs> and writer, wonderful writer, of course, has said famously, Jesus came to raise the dead. The only qualification for the gift of the gospel is to be dead. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be good. You don't have to be wise. You don't have to be wonderful. You just have to be dead. That's it. So this is what it comes down to for every human being. You take the first religion of climbing up the ladder and you stand before God on your own with your own guilt and your own shame and your own shortcomings and your own imperfections, or you simply receive the gospel that has been won for you and stand before God with the covering of righteousness he's provided in his son, Jesus Christ. You either sweat it out trying to please an unpleasable God, or you give up and admit you're dead in sins and trespasses and trust in him to catch you, cover you, forgive you, love you, hold you, and bring you life. And then guess what? As Paul says here, you're no longer under the curse. So next week, we will, we will look more in depth then at the question, all right, why did God give the law? If it's not, if it was never meant to save us, then what's the purpose of the law in the first place? Very important question. Paul will spend verses 15 through 29 really hashing that out. Uh, that's it for this week, gang. I hope you have a great Easter, uh, post-Easter week, uh, and uh, we'll catch up with you next Tuesday. God bless.